Kenai. Uh, Eric and I have made a special trip up to Anchorage today, and we're super excited to be sitting in the home of Mr. Ken Miller. Yeah, happy to, uh, happy to be here. So Eric and I actually saw Ken originally speak at KPC at an event that he did there, and we were both really moved by his story, and like literally the next day we were like, dude, you got to talk to this guy. So yeah, how's it going today, Ken? Oh, it's going wonderful, thank you. Yeah, awesome. So we'll just have you kind of introduce yourself. Well, my name is Ken Miller, and I am a business owner. I own a business up in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm a consultant for nonprofits, predominantly in the area of fund development and board development for nonprofits in the state of Alaska, and I also do some things nationally in that area. Nice. So what kind of got you into fundraising? I sort of fell into working for a company called Beans Cafe. Then I was approached by a large foundation in the state of Alaska to possibly go out on my own as a consultant. And I took them up on it, and I've been doing that for about seven years. Nice. Super cool. So you're from Alaska, right? Well, yeah, I moved up here when I was 12 years old from New York. Mm-hmm. I'm 57 presently, presently, and I moved up here in 1975, and I left for a, quite a few years, mainly due to my addiction and alcoholism, and then I came back approximately 11 years ago mm-hmm. to marry my high school sweetheart. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's cool. So you, you grew up in New York? Well, you New could York say that. Okay. Yeah. And my childhood, my early childhood was spent in New York. Um, we talk a little bit about my my childhood. I was an adopted kid, oh, okay. and I was a, adopted at age six. My first six years, which were spent in Long Island, predominantly, I was uh, a foster child, and I went through many different foster homes. And then at age six, I was adopted by uh, my mother and father, who I call my mother and father, Irene Sam Miller. And uh, at uh, age twelve, we moved to Alaska. Okay. So do you do you know why you what brought you guys to Alaska? Work. Okay. And predominantly get away from my father. Mm-hmm. Was a, a large reason my father was very very violent alcoholic. Okay. And um, to escape him, predominantly from me, I was an only child. So we moved to Alaska to get as far away as possible from him. So you and your mom? Yes. Me okay. and my mom, two dogs and a cat. Okay. <laughs> very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So growing up, first of all, as a foster child, I mean, that's hard. As you got older and into Alaska, did, did you ever have any questions about like, like for your mom or for your parents, like kind of, because you actually, you didn't meet your mom for a long time, right? Correct. You're a biological mom. Correct. So with your parents and things like that, I feel like a lot of kids that it, or in this kind of situation kind of have, especially people we've talked to that end up in addiction and in recovery. What are some of the questions you, or did you have questions for like your mom, like regarding your parents when you were young, you know, kind of like what your identity is and like who, is there's ever some questions of like, who am I? Yes. Yeah. I had quite a few of those. You know, as a, as a foster child, I was six years old when I was adopted, but I knew I was a foster child because mm-hmm. I had been to all these different foster homes. And um, the only thing I wanted was someone to call mother. I wasn't mm-hmm. concerned about father. At that age, it's all about mother and having someone to call a mother and to have that nurture and love from a woman as a mother. Um, I did not have that. 
I wanted that. I knew I was missing that. And until I found my mother, uh, my biological mother, that hole was ever filled. But the mother who adopted me, her name was Irene Miller, was an incredible, incredible human being and a beautiful person in all facets of her life. And I'm just uh, honored and glad that, you know, uh, I had an opportunity to spend time with her. Unfortunately, you know, as my story would entail, I hurt her quite a bit emotionally. Um, there's things that I did that were, um, that caused her a lot of pain. And I, not that I have regret on that, I very much have accepted where I am. And, but we, when she passed, our relationship was beautiful. It was beautiful. So when you uh, when you moved up to Alaska, what, um, if you if you can remember, what were kind of your thoughts there? Like, was, was it hard? Was it fun? You know, what was what was what were kind of your? I moved here in September of 1975, and uh, first of all, I was uh, tremendously relieved that I was away from my father. Mm-hmm. My father was very violent, mm-hmm. and the violence was always perpetrated upon me. Mm-hmm. That's it. Never did anything to my mother until later on when he shot her. That's mm-hmm. another story. So I moved up in 1975. I was going to Central Junior High in Anchorage, Alaska, living on 1535 K Street, September of 75. Uh, the economy was superheated due to the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And But I do remember an officer who had been shot, Officer John, I think it's John Flora, Anchorage PD. Who was shot, and we had come from New York where there was a lot of um, violence directed at police. And I was just so surprised. I thought we got away from that because New York was really in bad shape back in New York City was. And um, so we came up, and but I was just so, it was a, I tell people, other than some periods of my sobriety, that was the happiest probably four months of my life. Yeah, just getting up and just you and your mom. And just me and my you. mom. Two dogs and one cat. <laughs> yeah. That's super cool. So if you, I just, uh, Aaron and I took a, uh, a history class at the college, and uh, it was really cool. A history of Alaska, to be specific. And that was really cool to learn so much about uh, about Alaska, you know. And now we, we were joking today, and we're like, hey, Walter J. Hickel Parkway. And, you know, because we learned he's a politician. And so now it's like it, all these names and things, like, mean something. Uh in the Anchorage area. Um, so when you when you moved up, do you know, in 77, was the pipeline in at that point or was it being fought over? In 75. Oh, sorry. September of 1975, and it was being built. It was being built. Mm-hmm. Okay. And okay. it was really towards the beginning of it being built. It was built throughout the rest of the 70s. I think it might have opened 79-ish, mm-hmm. uh, 1980. Um, so it was, the economy, like I said, was overheated. What that means is in, there wasn't enough housing, mm-hmm. and when there is a great demand for a small supply, prices go up. All right, they get very expensive. So it was very expensive from especially where we were coming from. Uh, but you know, again, it, we were poor um, at that time, so my mother's income could catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were so happy, mm-hmm. so happy. At least yeah. I was so. Well, we were so happy. Right. right. Yeah, it was uh, one of the things that I, in that history class, that I really 
didn't know before but came to know was that that was it very the pipeline was such a contentious deal between the state and the feds for so long and so now it's like hearing about these things i'm like man okay so there was a lot going on at that time politically yeah economically oh yeah yeah it was, a, it was a great time for Alaska in a lot of ways. We're like a young state, mm -hmm. and um, honestly, you could say it was like our teenage years. Yeah, so we were founded in '59, right. so we were 18 years old. And in a lot of ways, I believe we acted like we were 18 when we did. <laughs> and then what happens is, is money changes people, mm -hmm. and what that means is that when you have access to a great amount of wealth, um, decisions need to be made many times for long term and decisions many times are made for short term because there's a pent-up demand for goods and services that weren't there um so anyway that's what anchorage was smaller obviously it was dirtier it was more dangerous people think it's more dangerous now it wasn't for capita it was much more dangerous sure you know, Fourth Avenue was terrible back in those days, and um, it was it was it was definitely rougher, sure. especially Anchorage. And Anchorage was you know growing up and now you know this cosmopolitan city, but it was, it was pretty tough. But we did have North Shores. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It just opened. Yeah. Aaron and I just went to the mall today, and I said, "Man, North Shores shut down." Yeah. yeah. Um. So okay, I think I. So you get to Alaska, and then. then, then Tell us about so, so I, I get to Alaska, I go to uh, Central um, in eighth grade. Uh, my first half of my eighth grade year, I was in Central. Then we moved to the Diamond area, I went to Meters for half a year. And then we moved over to Chester Valley on the west side, not west side, excuse me, on the east side by Muldoon. And I went to Bartlett for the next four years and graduated from Bartlett High School. While I was in Bartlett, I did well academically, uh, and I was accepted to Dartmouth College. I went Ivy League. Wow, Dartmouth College. And that was, I mean, mm -hmm. was that like, whoa, I'm going to Dartmouth? Or no. Were you just kind of, no, no, it was I'm hard. pretty smart. Like, yeah, I do well in school. I'm going to go to Dartmouth. Yeah. yeah, I applied to Dartmouth, Harvard, and Oberlin. Got accepted to all of them. Decided to go to Dartmouth for a few different. And that's reasons. in Hanover, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Hanover, New Hampshire. Yeah, um, had never been there. Didn't know anything about it. Never saw prep in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, went off to Dartmouth in the fall of 1980. At that time, to go to the alcohol and the drugs, in the mid-70s, late-70s, we were very prevalent in Anchorage, even in the high school level. But remember back in the 70s, we could smoke cigarettes mm -hmm. at, in the high school. I mean, right outside, there was a smoking sure. area, but there was a lot of smokers so that was allowed and we was decriminalized and a lot of individuals i knew at, at the high school level smoked weed so i was exposed to weed and smoked it twice but didn't really care for it uh, i would and i had a half a beer in high school wow because i'm an alcoholic you know, if i was to start drinking in high school i would not be i would never went to Dartmouth. that's for mm -hmm. sure i would probably went to college because I'm a full-blown alcoholic, which I found out very shortly upon my arrival at Dartmouth. So that's as I mean, it's, it's very what's very plain is your consumption of substances throughout high school is remarkably low. You know why was that? A couple of reasons. Number one, um, I was a good kid. 
Sure. He's a good kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was an academic. That was just a nice kid. And then uh, my father came back into my life in eighth grade. We, after being separated for about four or five months, uh, my mother allowed him to come back. So he came back, stayed sober for a couple years. I was always deathly afraid of my father. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't going to act out in any way or shape or form of drugs or alcohol um, while my father was in that house. Probably approximately my junior, senior year, probably my junior year in high school, my father started drinking again. My father is an alcoholic and my father is violent. And so he, uh, we proceeded to get into uh, disagreements. Um, yeah, it's a very nice way of saying he whooped my ass a few mm-hmm. times. Police had to be called. And we finally had to, uh, my senior year in high school, we had to hide out. Really? Literally hide out. Wow. And um, because they got so mad. Yeah. And so we hid out uh, until I could get, go off to college. Yeah. And I didn't speak to my father or see my father for approximately three years after that. So how did, so you're, you're not using in high school and up until college. And so when you get to college and your use, it sounds like it kind of starts to take off when you get there. Was it just kind of this about now that like you're totally out on your own, you tell me you have no reason not to, and you're just kind of dabbling or like how does that kind of so this is how this starts. lead over? And I hope individuals that listening will understand this. I'm an alcoholic because I have a physiological reaction to alcohol that I'm incapable of stopping once I start. Mm-hmm. That's what makes me an alcoholic. It's not my past. It's not the conditions. It's not my environment. That's my opinion and that's my belief. When I went to college, the reason I started drinking in college is because that's what college kids do. We drink. What we do on the weekend. That's what we do on the weekdays. That's what we have fraternities for. It's to drink. And so I invite, I, the last thing I want to do is be an alcoholic. I had an example of my father. Why would I want to be like my father? Sure. My mom drank zero. Zero. Yeah. Um, but I'm a college kid. I want to, I want to relate. I want to hang out. So I drank. The first day I went to Dartmouth, I came in in the evening like a lost fish. Uh, and I remember walking down the hall and they were smoking weed and in the dorm room. And I'm like, isn't that illegal? You know, I was, I was so naive. And uh, <laughs> where did you come from? And so uh, I smoked some weed. And uh, because that's, again, that's what we did. So I started drinking approximately October of my freshman year and by December of my freshman year for going out. And all that means is that I have the inability to control the amount that I drink once I start. And I have a tendency to drink to excess, and I make really bad decisions under the influence of alcohol. That's simple. It's pretty dang clear. Um, So you said you graduated from Dartmouth? Barely. But you did? Yeah. We could say so that. somehow you functioned enough. Maybe you can. I I wonder about. It. I just as a you know. I I, I barely functioned. Okay. Especially towards the end, I had a diary at one point, and I remember I wrote in the diary. It was thirty-one days 
that year, and 31 of them I was drunk when I was writing in that journal. And one day I didn't write. So I, I, would, I was drunk every single day. And when I mean drunk, I drank to excess. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm not even going to say I was good at it. I had the ability to drink a lot. I drank 30 beers in one in, in an hour and 10 minutes. Yeah, I chugged 14 ounces of whiskey in one chug, which I'm not going to say killed, almost killed me, but shut down my throat. I mm -hmm. never forget that. And literally three minutes later, from dead sober, I was dead drunk. Mm -hmm. He had to carry me back up to my dorm room, not my fraternity room. Um, I had violence under the influence of alcohol. Um, I've been hurt bad under the influence of alcohol. I uh, engaged in behavior. Uh, theft and, and uh, other sundry um, items. Um, I've had a, a attempted sexual assault from the influence of alcohol or drugs in college. I mean, so I can go on, there's a litany of stories and things that I did. And this is early. We're talking about this is the first two to three years of my drinking mm -hmm. that I did these things. And yeah, I barely, barely, because my big thing was. Uh, it was difficult for me to go to class because mm. I'd be hungover. Well, I just didn't want to go. Right. And I can say I'm fortunate. In the areas that I am intelligent, I'm very intelligent in the areas that I'm intelligent, which are English and history. But math and science, I had to get a tutor and, and uh, do a few other things just to make it through Yard. Yard is not easy. And I went to school. Yeah. And, uh, but I did. And um, I'm here today, and I do have my diplomas upstairs, and I have graduated. So uh, I got out of college and survived college. And my graduation present, literally, for, for college was my first treatment center. Mm -hmm. And people who know my story, I ended up doing 14 inpatient treatment centers over the year. Really? Yeah. Wow. But my first one was a place called North Point um, Treatment Center. It was on Fireweed in Anchorage, Alaska. That was my graduation present. I didn't know that. I thought I was going to get a car. Instead, I got treatment. And I went to treatment and uh, stopped drinking. <laughs> what was your attitude at that point? Were you like, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm an alcoholic. I don't drink with other people. I need to go to treatment. I mean, what, what was it? Your I was attitude incredibly... Not even an attitude toward sure. treatment, it was an attitude toward life. Sure. I was tremendously depressed. Okay. Because I was, first of all, I was removed from the alcohol and the drugs. And um, I'm back home, and I remember I like pretty much laid on a couch for like two or three weeks. You know, it, it might have been in some way withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, my drugs of choice were weed and powder cocaine. Mm -hmm. This is 1984. There was no crack. There was right. no freebase. There was no methamphetamine. There was no heroin. All the things I ended up doing later on, those did not exist. And the Willie said, darn thing didn't exist. Right. I never right. saw. So, um, but you still go through withdrawals. And also, I missed the party. Yeah. I, was a, I was a partier. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a world created around my drinking and drugging that I had many other individuals 
that were willing to join in with me. Mm-hmm. And then when you remove that environment, uh, it makes it real, real difficult to continue that behavior. Plus, you know, I'm at home. And uh, my mom was with me. Mm-hmm. So what's that car ride like when your mom's driving? Like she, because it was a surprise, right? Like you just, you thought you were going to the car dealership and you end up going to North Point. It's like, is it? Yeah, very surprised because I was very happy. I was going to get my car. I'm like, what? 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 I had no money, but I'm thinking, you know, Corvette, you know, (laughs) maybe a Beamer. Back in the day, Saab were cool, you know, and, um, but that just shows you that really the insanity of the other because I didn't even deserve, you know, a a uh, a graduation present for many reasons. My grades weren't that great, mm-hmm. and what it did is precluded because my my goal was to be either a politician, but definitely be a lawyer. I never had an opportunity to be a lawyer because. The years that I could have went to grad school, at least I could have chosen to go to grad school, um, I was in my active addiction mm-hmm. in alcoholism. So we return. I go to, to the treatment. But once I went in there, I was like, this is cool. And, um, but it was tough because my ego was mm-hmm. so strong at that point. Because I'm 21 years old, and people who know me have seen me. I'm African American. I'm six foot two. Away, you know, 190. I'm a good-looking guy. I'm you know, modeling, doing things in that area, and I got an Ivy League degree, and I go and I get a job in the white-collar world, corporate sales. I'm making fifty thousand dollars a year, which is a lot of money in '84, '85, and um, I didn't think I had to do the program as it was outlined. Mm-hmm. In the anonymous program. Yeah, there was a program for those guys, and there was a program for guys like you. Right. Okay. And I'm too smart for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I'm a national merit scholar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and what it predominantly means is I did not have to engage in the spiritual aspects of the program. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, which is one that probably came back to haunt me, is I thought. My problem was with alcohol. Therefore, I could engage with other drugs, mm-hmm. knowing that my problem was alcohol. I didn't have a problem with weed. Right. I really didn't have a problem with powder cocaine early on. Um, <laughs> and so I I got two years sobriety, but I was still doing weed. And I was mm-hmm. doing cocaine, kind of cocaine. But I wasn't drinking. Yeah. I wasn't drinking. <laughs> sober. You know, I'm yeah. sober. <laughs> Not clean, but I'm sober. Yeah. See, were you, uh, and I get this is a funky term to use mm-hmm. in this case, but were you at that point managing things? Were you? Kind I of awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I was Because that's what it sounded like. Right. I was doing awesome, except for when the cocaine started to turn on. Okay. The weed, I to this day, I have friends who do weed and have a fantastic life. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's also friends I have who do alcohol and have a fantastic life. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I know very few people that do crack that have a fantastic <laughs> life or do methamphetamine that have a fantastic life. I've even known people who do heroin who are nurses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As long as they get their wake up, okay. Mm-hmm. 
the early morning one, and they, and they do a shot at night. They function. I don't know how long. This is these are anomalies. Please, I do not recommend right. being a functioning heroin addict any way, shape, or form. Having said that, that is them. That's not me. I cannot take in any mind-altering chemical volitionally on purpose and keep my sobriety or keep my sanity or be an upstanding member of this community or society, period. That's for me. Right. Mm -hmm. This is my story. And so the cocaine, I was functioning. I wasn't doing too bad there. You know, I probably was still had my cocaine powder. But once I got introduced to Freebase, then we had a problem. And so I did Freebase a couple times and it really, really threw me for a loop. And I stopped doing Freebase. And finally, I, in 1986, after being sober for two years, I flew to Hawaii and a gentleman offered me a blue Hawaiian. And I pretty much made a decision, maybe I'm not an Sure. Maybe I'm not. Yeah. You know, 23, I got this awesome life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you, know? you can manage it now. Yeah. yeah. And Old Ken couldn't, new Ken. Right. He's got it. Because remember, many times, this is a difficulty that people have in recovery. They believe that their addiction or alcoholism is based on external factors. So if I change the external factors, if I change the environment, therefore, I can drink mm -hmm. slash use without pain on the back end. That's what it all comes down to. In the end, it comes down to pain on the back end. How can I take my drug of choice, because there's things that, that are positive, to me at least, or I'm just addicted, and not have pain on the back end? Mm -hmm. I know for a 100% fact, I cannot, for any length of time, take my drug of choice or any drug and not have pain on the back end. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I go to Hawaii. I'm thinking maybe I can handle this now. Uh, I can do this without, and literally within two days. Because I can't stop. Mm -hmm. like, I don't, my shutoff valve doesn't work. You know, for many alcoholics, it's the same. My shutoff valve doesn't work. And what I mean by that, um, I can imbibe and will continue to imbibe until either I either pass out um, or I get arrested or something else happens mm -hmm. that stops. Usually I fall asleep before I go to sleep. So, and then again, once you get enough beers in me, things that for rational reasons are not alternative for me to engage in become very doable. Very doable. Yeah. All inhibitions off. Oh, yeah. Inhibitions are off. In, in, there's, a, there's a part that says, for a rational person that for long term we we will not engage in specific behavior because long term is bad for us. The long term is going to put you in prison for three years, five years, seven years. The long term is you're going to lose the wife or the girlfriend. The long term is you're going to break a relationship with people that love you and you love. Mm -hmm. That's the long term. But short term, the viable thing is to mm -hmm. go rob this gas station. Right. Which I did. Right. I mean, that's another story later on down the road. So I made that decision and got back on that horse. Mm -hmm. And I had to ride that 
for a long time. That was 1986. And I really didn't come back up for air until 1991. So we had five years. We had five years. That was, it was a tough five years. From Hawaii, did you come back up here and... Yeah, I came back home. And things kind of fell apart employment-wise, housing-wise. Quickly. Day. Yeah, quickly. Of a month or yeah, two. they, they, not there. Yeah, it took a little longer. It took sure. about two years. Oh, okay. Because I built up, again, this incredible life. Yeah. And, but it, it took about two years, and I lost pretty much everything. Then I got an offer to move to the lower 48, because they didn't know. I already saw what was on paper. Mm -hmm. But I brought my addiction with me. Again, let's change the environment. I can do it differently. And within literally a month, I crashed the company car, lost my job, and I was suicidal. I was going to jump off the Spokane Falls Bridge. Mm -hmm. Never forget that. And that's when I went into my first inpatient treatment center in 1988. Mm -hmm. Cedar, Cedar, um, uh, I was going to say Cedar Point, but Sundown and Ranch. So how has your mindset changed from walking, well, from going with your mom the first time to walking in the second time? The second time I was so desperate. Mm -hmm. That was me. I, yeah, I called my mom up. I was getting ready to jump off the bridge. I, I probably would have done it. I tried to kill myself later on. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I was on the bridge despondent. And I called my mom. I said, my mother did not accept my phone call. So it's a collect call. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, no cell phone. And uh, she said, Kenneth, she was called Kenneth, uh, I know you haven't been doing well, and I have a treatment center for you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how do you know this? Right. And uh, so I went to Sundown Inn, inpatient, and uh, I had 21 or 28 days, did it. And it was so funny because I came out, I'm like, I got this. <laughs> I got this. And I went to Seattle and Stayed, let's say, sober for another month or two. And then I started drinking again. Went in Nordstrom in Seattle, and I got introduced to crack cocaine. This is in late '88, and within two or three months of being introduced to crack cocaine, I began I began my journey of being homeless and straight homeless. Those are the missions. How long did it? Because so it's when you move to Seattle, you have a job, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming you have a place to live. Mm -hmm. So how long after you're introduced to crack cocaine does it take for all of that to just two kind of two, two months? months? Yeah, two just gone. Two months. Because with crack you spend every second. Alcohol is a, you can you know not it, it's not as expensive number mm -hmm. one and number two is a little it's definitely slower. I used to sometimes say I'm I'm so glad I had introduced to alcohol. I mean to crack cocaine because it took me down so fast so many times that I either had to get help or go to prison or um, or try to end it because mm -hmm. it would take me down so fast. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i not uh, making light of the crack, but somebody told to the sentences and to do that, but somebody told me, they said, they said I knew this person and I, they told me crack tastes like more. Like you just want more. Like I mean, that's the best way to define like the ultimate like taste of crack is that like more. Like we want more. I mean, you know, I don't. I don't remember. I mean, I'm just talking about even just fizzy physical taste of crack. I mean, crack tastes differently, but there's a smell to crack. And every once in a while, I'll smell it. And it's yeah. not crack, but it's right. something that smells like crack. 
And as soon as I hear it, it just fires off the synapses in my brain. It doesn't make me want to. I was like, oh, it's crack. That's like crack smell. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it just paints a picture as soon as I smell it. Right. And again, it's so much everything that we do uh, in recovery or even in our addiction has to really do with our senses and our perceptions. And our perceptions can lead us into good or bad. Okay, because again, that's the gift from God is that we can perceive things, and it's how do we interpret. And we'll always talk about how do we interpret time. And one of the things that drug addiction does to it changes time, it changes how we look at time. And one of the things about being a restoration of sanity is to get back to a point where you can look at time differently how you look at the past, how you look at the present, how you look at the future. An addict doesn't have a sense of future. Mm-hmm. It's gone. Everything's in the present. I don't think about what type of lick I'm going to do a month from now. Mm-hmm. I don't think about right. what kind of robbery I'm going to do six months from now. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about literally the next hour. Right. Or at the most, I'm thinking about when I become conscious in the morning or come to, what am I going to do today mm-hmm. to feed my addiction? Right. Okay. And then the past we use differently and perceive differently as an addict or as someone. And that's one of the things that in recovery we have to learn how to change our perception of the past. Mm-hmm. And so as an addict, the past is used mainly, from what I've seen, as an excuse. Mm-hmm. It's the rationalization for being the addict or alcoholic. Because I was beat. Because I was sexually abused. Because I didn't have a mom. Because, because, because. We'll use the past. We say, well, because of this past, because I need to rationalize something that I know is not good for me. Deep down, I know it's not good for me. I knew that as a cricket. I knew that as an alcoholic. But if you had had the life I grew up with, you'd be one to. Right. And you have to take away and change those perceptions of the past and change change the emotion connected with past memory. I've done that. Mm-hmm. Commencement. Right. So we're up to uh, 88, 89. I now become homeless. And that means I'm living in Seattle on a mission. Mm-hmm. There's five missions. Penny Hill Mission, Bread of Life Mission, Downtown Emergency Shelter, um, Seattle Gospel Mission, and the Salvation Art Program. Adult Rehabilitation Center program. Those are the five. Mm-hmm. And I would just rotate between those. Um, I didn't know the streets that well, so I didn't hustle as much as I ended up doing later on. But um, uh, I, I, I didn't function very well at all. And so I kept going in and out of different drug treatment programs. Uh, the state of Washington has some good ones. And um, finally, in 1991, I had uh, begun pimping mm-hmm. teenage girls in uh, Aurora Boulevard, South Tacoma, down to Seattle. We call them uh, SeaTac area, you know, where the, the, the SeaTac killer got all these girls. Those were my areas that I would work with the young ladies. Um, and it's sad because. Many of them didn't have an addiction program, addiction problem, but I was too young. 
but they definitely had problems with um, self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them had a sexual assault when they were younger. I mean, I've talked to probably 100, 200 uh, working girls mm-hmm. in my life. And uh, every one of them, there's some some type of sexual assault. At least mm-hmm. everyone I've spoken to. Because right. I would speak with them, I've talked to them. And um, anyway, so I was doing that. And uh, so a situation had uh, happened that I had lost contact with the main young lady that I was uh, working with. And no, I wasn't, I wasn't working with, uh, I was taking advantage yeah, of yeah. Uh, to feed my addiction. And um, I ended up doing a burglary. And I did the burglary. And I was uh, caught. Well, they knew I did it. I burglarized the, ha- the next door neighbor's house to where we were fixing a house on some day labor. And everybody watched me do it who was working there. And so um, I went to uh, get sentenced for a Class A felony, state of Washington, five-year minimum, which is a home burglary. And I was given an extraordinary sentence of what they call intensive probation, which is hardly ever given in a Class A. But they did it because of my Ivy League background. And I wasn't, I didn't really have a criminal, I didn't have a criminal background. I'd had a couple crimes before that, two DUIs. And I had a theft charge. It kind of paints a picture that, like, you're not necessarily a criminal first and an addict second. You're more of an addict first. That's like a symptom of right. your criminal behavior is a symptom of your addict addictive tendencies versus a repeating criminal. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Good way of putting it. And, um, but you know, it's funny. You know, talk about it. you know, because a lot of times you talk to addicts. Me, I don't want to identify as being alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic before I became a drug addict. And uh, I got a DUI in 1991. And I went to jail in the state of Washington, go to jail for three days, automatically, 72 hours. I got out, uh, let's say, four o'clock. Um, I was back in jail for another DUI within three hours. Jesus. <laughs> I went straight, I went home, cab driver took me home, I got in my car, drove to the bar, there's an off-duty cop in uniform working the door, moonlighting, working the door. And I went in there, got drunk, walked out past the cop (laughs) in uniform, and put my key in the ignition. He's standing right in front of the car, he said, turn it off. As soon as you do that, you can Mm -hmm. drive. So I go back into jail, supposed to do a month. On your second offense, you do 30 days, mm-hmm. automatic. It hadn't gone through the system. So all <laughs> they, they gave me was an old three days. Yeah. It was funny because the jailer came on the next shift and he's like, didn't, I think you were getting out. You know, like, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I did another three days, got out, saved cab driver, picked me up. He's like, you again? Like, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to drive this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This one I get home. So I picked up two DUIs in four days. And uh, I, I got out, went to Alaska, worked on a fishing and crab boat, and picked up a charge while I was gone. Called my mom and she said, you need to come home because it's a theft charge that you have, uh, which was crazy. And I came back and it was just a misdemeanor, dealt with that. And then uh, continued to go downhill, started the pimping. 
and then I picked up the burglary. So I did two years, stayed sober and clean for two years. And during that time, I thought I was, I still didn't want to do the spiritual. Mm-hmm. But I worked a pretty good program, you know, pretty good. I had a good life, I had a really good life. Um, but, and I talk about this all the time, emotional trigger events. When you are clean or sober, we, you have to be always on the lookout for emotional trigger events. You can't, let's say an emotion on a scale of one to ten, good or bad. Mm-hmm. As an addict or alcoholic, especially in early recovery, especially in early recovery, you can't afford any seven, eight, and nine. You mm-hmm. can't afford them because they put you in too much emotional pain. Right. And drugs work. Mm-hmm. People hear all the time, drugs don't work. No, drugs always work. Only thing a drug does is change your perception of reality. You take aspirin because your perception of reality is that you're in pain. And the drug masks that pain. It, mm-hmm. it worked. Yeah. Okay? People always say, oh, drugs not working for me. I said, well, take four hits of acid and tell me that didn't work. Okay? I just, my experience, I've taken four hits of acid. Mm-hmm. It works. Right. Okay? Whether you want to be mm-hmm. or you don't want it to be. <laughs> you want it to work or not, it's going to okay. happen. So I got to a position where I had some emotional pain, a tremendous amount of emotional pain. Because I wasn't being true to myself mm-hmm. in a relationship that I was in. I was using a woman, and I ended up doing this for many, many years, using women. And uh, anyway, I was using this woman for a place to live, and she took care of me. Before you have uh, a question, yeah. um, what is it, I guess, in maybe an example, or could you expound on what you mean by not being true to yourself? Because I hear that. But sometimes I don't know what that means. So fundamentally, you uh, understand what your truth is. Okay. And and this is an issue of self-esteem. And what it comes down to is that you know what will make you feel comfortable or, or is the thing that is your core fundamental beliefs. Okay, values, beliefs, integrity, and you'll see this a lot. And the one I'm going to use, for example, because that was the truth, was in a relationship. I was in a relationship with a woman I did not love. I was in a relationship with a woman I never loved. Mm -hmm. But she provided this, 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 and this. And I knew that. And so when I realized that after a couple of years, but I'm like sort of stuck in this relationship mm-hmm. and I didn't like it. And so I, um, it, it started building up. This, this ended up happening again when I relapsed this, another time. Same thing. What happened was is, um, she went on a, a trip and uh, I decided to drink. And within literally 48 hours, I had destroyed a life. You destroyed a, 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 when I'm talking about destroyed a life, I'm talking about destroyed a world. Mm-hmm. Okay, her world, my okay. world, and her sister's world. Because I, I had keys to her sister's apartment. So I destroyed the world. Destroyed three worlds mm-hmm. in 48 hours. Yeah. And that was the beginning. That was 1993, 1994. Um, it was like June of 94, and really for the next 10 years, 
Just got back, just right back to it, huh? Yeah, we're back, and you know, I go up and down because mm-hmm. now we start. Now, in a few years, we'll start going to jail and prison. Right. And that would be breaks for me. Mm-hmm. I'll go right back into it. In the meantime, I got married, beautiful wife, um, and uh, again, I had an emotional trigger event. And with that, uh, and with the emotional trigger event for me. It says um, that I'm my, my own worst enemy. I don't like me. This is sober. Mm-hmm. I don't like me because I'm not being true to me. Right. Me wants or needs or desires certain things that are not being met. And because of that, um, I'm weak. I'm less than. And therefore, I have a lot of self-hatred. Mm-hmm. And so we have a term that we use in the program, a term I use, it's called ethics, mm-hmm. and we don't want to get to the ethics. Right. Once I get to the ethics, then I'm in a position where all I, I say... I didn't know you were saying. Yeah, now, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, like, all right, I, see, I know those. Right, I don't know where yeah, we are with yeah. the Oh, so, no, yeah. Ethics. Yeah, we'll use ethics. totally. So, and so... So once you get to that, what you're saying is, I know this probably is not going to be good for me. I know that. But F it. Mm-hmm. I'm in enough pain. Right. I don't care. Just that sense, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I remember what I say, we change the sense of long term. Right. So we end up doing things, the longer version of it, we do things that are inimical to our long term well-being. Inimical. Mm-hmm. It's bad mm-hmm. for us long term. And we make decisions based on that. Because it's all, in the end, it's always about decision. Right. Not so much choice. If I have the same choice, I have a choice today drink or drug if I so choose. Mm-hmm. But my decision is to not drink or drug. Right. So I got to that point where um, I, uh, I relapsed and went up and down, got married, stayed sober for a little while. Then again, I had some self-doubt and I had a sense of less than, uh, tremendous, tremendous. I remember talking to a friend of mine in sobriety, good friend of mine named Marvin, and I'm talking to him and he said, Ken, if you don't do something about this, you will relapse. And literally, probably a week later, I relapsed on crack cocaine. And um, that was the beginning again. That was ninety. That was ninety six mm-hmm. until two thousand four. Other than respites based on jail and prison, it was all bad. Mm-hmm. It was all bad. Right. Did you stay here? No, no, no. At that time, I was in. Um, I was. I was. I was in Seattle, okay. and I went from Seattle. To get married in California, I was in Yuba City area, and married there, and I was married to a lovely lady, and uh, I was a father, I was a stepfather, and um, soon the role, I was a breadwinner, she didn't work, she was a stay-at-home mother, and I chose because I did not have the maturity to deal with certain situations in my life, um, in my relationship with her, that I chose to go out there. But I had to lie. 
Anyway, I didn't have as much room time as she thought. And so I relapsed and went down pretty quickly and then I moved back to Reno. I moved, I moved to Reno, Nevada, and that's where I did all my prison time. Mm -hmm. And the majority of my real street life. Right. As you heard some of my story, I was street. Mm -hmm. And it was all about the hustle. What did that, what did that look like? What did it entail? Yeah. So the hustle, very simply, so it's funny because I watch a lot of TV. Not a lot of TV. I see TV, and, and uh, unless you're watching something a little bit with cops, but every time a cop, everybody gets arrested, they have no shirts on. That's not. <laughs> I don't have my shirt on. Yeah, right. yeah I mean, I have no shirt. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I had my shirt on. Other than that, it was pretty close to that. Um, but the, on the streets, there's different levels of active addiction and different levels of alcoholism. First of all, you have, you have groups of people that are alcoholics that are, what you were saying, are sustaining alcoholics. So many of them have a check that comes in monthly so they pay their motel. So everything, at least in Reno, is all about motels. Mm -hmm. We lived in and out of motels. Right? Sometimes abandoned cars, abandoned homes. But almost everything was motels. My great goal on the street was to get a room for a week. That mm -hmm. was my, my biggest thing I could think of. Okay, it was a weekly. Uh, but usually it was a daily and, and maybe a couple, two, three people and you'd go to somebody else who had a room, hang out with them and go do your thing. And then if you had a room, you'd invite people, they could stay with you. So anyway, first of all, you take care of your housing and there's individuals that can function in there. Then you have individuals who are those who are on the supply side. Those are your drug dealers. Most drug dealers, well, almost all drug dealers don't have, uh, if they're not alcoholics, rarely that happens. And very rarely are they drug addicts. Now, they all do drugs in that they smoke weed or what we call brilliant, crack cocaine, sprinkle their weed. Um, but they're not because it's very difficult to function when your product is something that you use. Because right. I tried to deal on many occasions, and I, I couldn't I smoke up all my dope. Right. And then you have individuals that are on the margins, and those individuals are the ones that are, quote unquote, your street people. <laughs> and those are your hustlers. So, as a female hustler, always your number one hustler is going to be prostitution. It, so sometimes you could be a booster and you could supply your addiction through boosting, but it was all different aspects of prostitution. Mm -hmm. Whether it's prostitution where you live with a drug dealer, there's prostitution where you have a sugar daddy, there's prostitution where you walk the street, there's prostitution where you have alcohol services. But they're all prostitution. Mm -hmm. They're selling a commodity to supply your drug. For, get, for men, we have a few more we can engage in robbery which i did you can engage in um the main one i did was i was the uh in between that's the best way there's a better word for it but that's what i did all i did is i went up and down the street and i would look at people and say you looking you looking you're right you're right you looking and all I needed for them to acknowledge they were looking for something. Mm -hmm. and it was my job 
to find them whatever they were looking for. Mm -hmm. And predominantly they're looking for either drugs or sex. Right. Okay? And then the sex could be male or female. And if they're looking for a female, I knew all the girls, and I would get what's called broken off, and I'd get a split of that. Mm -hmm. If they're looking for a male, I would offer myself, or, well, no, I would offer myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to bring a million other dudes. No, yeah. Um, and so I got involved with that, and that's a, that's a hustle. That's the hustle. Right. A hustle is just any type of thing that you can do to make money or drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have different hustles, and those are, and then you know, those things we would do in the casinos, because casinos, you know, you go into hopper diving, and, you know, looking for change mm -hmm. that's left in the hoppers. Um, there's a couple of, I never was really good with that. I was never good at shoplifting. Right. Um, I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. There's things you can do with checks. I mean, this is different. There's crime. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then, and of course, we, like I said, dealing drugs. Mm -hmm. But small level. Yeah. Know, I had an extra rock and I'd kind of flip it. Uh, mm -hmm. But my main thing was being an in between and selling myself. Those are my two main um, things that I did personally. And it, 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 it was, it wouldn't say it was tough. I, I didn't care. I was in right. the present. Mm -hmm. You know, there was one time I. One time a guy came to, to the room and he said, you down. And there's another person from the streets. And I'm like, cool, let's do it. I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. It could have been a murder. I didn't murder someone. I thought I could have got away with it. Right. Yeah, no, easily. Easily. Unfortunately. I went to, unfortunately, uh, kill people on, try to kill people on three occasions that I can remember. Mm -hmm. And I know twice with a gun and one, I tried to throw the guy off the balcony, um, third floor balcony at a motel. Mm -hmm. All drug related, all about, well, almost all about disrespect and money. Mm -hmm. One was over $100, one was over six rocks of crack cocaine, and one was just because of the way he was talking to me in front of people. I mean. mm -hmm. And in return, people tried to hurt me. Bad. And people have hurt me. They've broken my jaw twice. Eye over the nose broken. That's the streets. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I did, oh, I didn't even talk about Oh, the other one. I panhandled. Mm -hmm. I was a great panhandler. Right. Because all I needed was 93 cents. Because I, I, I drank beer. It was 32 ounce natural ice beer. Bush natural ice. 30, uh, 32 ounce, 93 cents. And all I needed to do was come up with 93. So in the beginning of the day, that was predominantly what I would do. Hey, can I get a dollar? And I, I was very frank about it. Can I get a dollar for a beer? And mm -hmm. you knew you ended up knowing who to ask. All right. And I'd ask college age white kids, white mm -hmm. men, college age, and that was the best group I could Right. By far, most women didn't really want to talk to me on the street for good reason. Mm-hmm. So you're. Uh, so during those years at that point, I mean, ever getting sober, ever building a life that you may have thought about when you're 17, I mean, that can't, is, does that creep up from time to time? Like, are you experiencing shame at that oh, point? Which was shame, of course. Some of the sexual, because, you know, it's not like you get to choose who you sleep with. Right. You know, you know I, I believe this is PG rated, so I have to be careful what I say. But you, you don't get to choose what acts you engage in. 
And I'd have done anything. Right. I've done some weird, weird because people so so you gotta say how this works. There are those that sell sell drugs, there are those that commit crimes to get more money for drugs. These mm-hmm. are the people I'm dealing with. Right. And then there are the individuals that are looking mm-hmm. called marks. And the marks are pretty much squares. Yeah, yeah. But they want drugs or women. Mm-hmm. Remember, they're in Reno, Nevada. It's this casino. So they're right. coming from different states, and they're looking for uh, pleasure. Mm-hmm. And um, they many times are very square looking. Yeah. And then once they get to the motel room and get a little drugs in them, they transform. Mm-hmm. They transform. And they get stuck many times. Mm-hmm. And um, one of our favorite things to do is get them stuck. And then we kidnap them. You get their family to. Well, yeah, yeah, they have their yeah their Western Union, mm-hmm. and they couldn't leave because so kidnapping is moving someone under the threat of violence, mm-hmm. okay, or impeding their movement under the threat of violence. Yeah, the threat of violence, mm-hmm. and we we were threatening. Yeah, and yeah, we were threatening. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, another I don't know if we get this or not, but anyway, it just. When I think about it, so was there shame? Yeah, there was oh, definitely shame on some of the sexual things I did. And it just, a lot of the shame, though, was just what a waste. Right. Yeah, what I mean, that's a waste. Mm-hmm. I was educated. I was, again, I was, I had all from the outside looking in. You were set. I was set. Mm-hmm. Healthy, good looking, tall, dark, handsome, quote unquote. Right. I believe. And here I am. Out here turning tricks mm-hmm. in a car or behind a house, behind a motel, whatever. Right, wherever, whenever, however. Yeah. Years, years. A year, yeah, I mean, years. It's not like, yeah. No, this wasn't like a one time thing. <laughs> yeah. This started in Seattle in like 90. I'd gotten it. So I told him when I did my speak, I told him about the situation. I got into a situation where I was at a club in Anchorage, originally started in Anchorage, and I was taken advantage of sexually by another man. And the shame, probably no shame equal that shame, because right. I was the first one. Mm-hmm. And then I got into a situation in Seattle where if I did certain things, I would get paid, and I wanted to smoke some more crack. Right. I don't know, like, hey, I'll just do, do anything. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'll do anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, that started, and then, like I said, I was attractive, and, and so more offers came, and then. You know, then you start almost actively soliciting it. Right. Because you know it works now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. If you got it, you, you do whatever is mm-hmm. available. And I'm not a, I'm not an armed robber. You know, I've done an armed robbery. I'm not, I'm not a thug. Right. Any way, shape, or form. So, you go out there, you do those things, and the shame comes from, again, the waste. And then the shame, a lot of me came from, the severing of relationships with people that love me. Because mm-hmm. there are people that love me. I am a very lovable person, clean and sober. Mm-hmm. Remember, I was a super innocent kid. I was a really nice kid. And um, my mom, some of my relatives, my friends, mm-hmm. my girlfriend. So what is your relationship with your mom like, like this at, around this time, these times, at like, ni- like 96? Because through... I do like... I do what a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts do. I sever the relationship. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of hurting them. 
Right. So I'm thinking out of sight, out of mind, they won't hurt, but they still hurt. Yeah. They can't find you, they can't communicate with you. They don't know if you're alive or dead day to day. Oh, that's I've, I've dealt with that. Mm-hmm. People looking for me, calling the hospital, calling the morgue, calling the police station. trying Because I disappear. Mm-hmm. Everything looks good on the outside. And then payday comes. Right. And I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, back to poor cell phone, you know where you are. They're not calling me. Right. In the middle of my addiction. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of shame. It's, you know, we use the word shame, but, you know, no, just self-hatred. Right. So, because I had so much self-hatred, what I would do is I would hurt myself. I would physically hurt myself. Sometimes you hear about this with women a lot. I was a cutter. Mm-hmm. So I got all kinds of cut marks, and I burned marks. You know, I mean, to show you guys, I burn marks, but I just burn myself. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was five cigarettes on that one. I would jab myself with ice picks. I mean, I would just hurt myself. And then I would do things to myself that would degrade. Right. And I mean, I'm not even going into the details, but it mm-hmm. degraded. Yeah. And um, I sometimes think, did I really do that? Mm-hmm. There's going to be a different version of this story that I would go into some more of the, um, the degradation. And hopefully, it will help some. Right. Because we're going to talk about hopefully we'll get to the recovery part. And that's the other side. Yeah. Um, so I had self-hatred, shame, and this lack of self-esteem that manifests itself with a continuum of this fire. So finally, in 19, or in 2000, <clears throat> I go to treatment number nine, eight or nine or whatever, get out. I go and live with this girl who's in the pro, who's in recovery too. She relapses, and shortly after I relapse, mm-hmm. kind of together. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then um, I uh, go and um, I go to my mom's place. I had the keys at that point. So I built a really good bedroom, and I rob her. I rob her house. I burglarize her house. And I took her sleeping pills. I took her checkbook. And um, went on and cast the checks. And I was so devastated that I done that. I took the pills mm-hmm. and they're sleeping pills. And with no uh, intention of waking up, I'm assuming. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, the years, yeah. The object for me in suicide was not to kill myself, it was to stop the pain. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to stop the pain. I just couldn't think of another way of doing it. Stopping the pain. Right. Because my pain was in consciousness. My pain was sober, was clean, but I was still in pain, mm-hmm. emotional pain, because of what I've become. And the worst thing about it is not so much what I did, how I feel physically done. It's that I didn't think I could stop it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was yeah. doomed to it. At no, I was going to continually be. An addict and continually being I didn't think I had any control yeah. or power. So I take him and uh, end up having, I went to the hospital. I was arrested and went to the hospital. I never be, I, it's a weird thing what you remember, but I remember they have you on a gurney, <coughs> but a handcuff to the gurney. Okay, because I'm yeah. I have a felony, I got mm-hmm. a new felony. And uh, I did that. Let me put it this way. You know you have a bad addiction when you 
walk into the police station on two occasions and ask them to arrest me. Mm -hmm. I asked them to arrest me. And they're like, arrest you for what? And the first one was for the burglary, and the second one, I said, well, I robbed my mom, and I know she had reported it, and uh, so that, that's how that went. That's the second one. Just because you knew that you couldn't stop your own exactly. train of destruction, so. I couldn't stop. Yes. I couldn't stop. Would, yeah. And by the way, I couldn't ever do it with these pills. And uh, so they give you charcoal, and it works. Because mm -hmm. I'm here. So that was in 2000. I go to prison for the first time. I went to prison three times. I went the first time. Because what they charged me with was internal possession of a controlled substance. That's interesting. Yeah. I was finding that to be yeah, an interesting charge. <coughs> yeah, I would say if they tested everybody in Reno, probably 60% of the people. Yeah. Yeah. For walking down the street. We call it walking on high. Mm -hmm. That's the crime. Sure. Yeah. But it's a felony. Yeah. So I went into uh, Warm Springs Correctional. Did like seven months on that first bit. And they let me out on uh, parole. I messed up the parole. I got remanded. How'd you mess that up? Used. Yeah. I so your uh, your use was kind of robbing your your ability to kind of use your your wits at times. The first time I went in, the first two times I went to the penitentiary, my May, most of my thinking was, I'll deal better when I get out. I'm going to get a packet, mm -hmm. package, and I'm not going to use my own drugs. <laughs> and uh, well, I'm not the first one to think of this great idea, mm -hmm. and I'm going to be a great drug dealer. Because mm -hmm. yeah, I'm smarter than everybody anyway. And uh, that didn't work. And the other thing was, it's so difficult, and this is where a lot of people struggle in recovery, because you're coming out most of the time at zero, coming out with a job. Mm -hmm. You're not coming out. Remember, I always went. I mean, nobody was going to take me. So I always went to a halfway house, a three-quarter way house, and uh, had to recreate a world. And so I did. I, I went in the first time. Got remanded, ended up with an escape on my record, which is not good. Because um, that put me at the medium level custody. So now I remember I have two felonies. I have a class A in the state of Washington. I have what's that, maybe a class C or B in uh, Nevada. That was my second felony. And then I got out the second time, lasted, let's say, a month or two, whatever it was, whatever long. And then I went in for the, the final final run of my journey. Mm -hmm. And this was now 2003, 2004. And um, it was really, that was real, that was real, it was a bad time. And I ended up to, I ended up in a position where uh, I had my jaw broken twice, summer of 2004. And it was broken severely. And so I'm all wired shut the first time over crack cocaine. And then the next time I'm on the streets and my jaw's wired shut and I get into another altercation. 
and the gentleman re-breaks it like I beg him not to. He'll hit me because I'm all wired should be. See, I told him, seal it. You can have the crap. Go ahead. So anyway, I get uh, and I go into J I go into uh, the hospital and, and I almost die on the operating table. Because I had so much drugs in my system, I didn't tell them that. And when they went to operate, they put me under. Yeah. Um they, they said my numbers just shot all over the place. So I survived that and uh, I get out, my jaws wired shut again, and I've been living with a sugar dad, which is an individual that takes care of your needs in return that you take care of his or her needs, as you say, or him. And so I had this gentleman, but he had moved, so I was back on the streets, and it's, I knew I was dying. I weighed about 40 pounds less than about 160, 165 pounds. I was all sucked up and had breakouts all over. And I tell the story. All I had left at that point was a pair of sneakers with no socks, a pair of shorts with no underwear, and a t-shirt. And that's the sole possession of my own Wow. And um, all my fingers had blisters on them from lighting the pipe. My lips were burnt from the pipe being so small. My all my nose hair was gone because the lighter was too close to my nose and I liked the pipe, a little short pipe. Had breakouts, had blisters on all my toes from walking the loop, as I would call it. The little loop and the big loop and weed on the bear. Doing my hustle. And um, I called my mom and said, Hey, I need treatment. And she said, I'll give you a ticket. I'll be waiting for you. I couldn't see her. I hadn't seen her in probably a year. But she loved me enough. She said, I'll give you a one-way ticket to Seattle. Go back to Seattle. Gospel mission. So I went and did a hustle. And in between, got paid with a rock of crack cocaine. And in my life, there's only been two times I hadn't smoked. All the crack I had in front of me. And I didn't. Because I wanted to sell that one for money for the bus to eat food mm-hmm. on the bus because it's a three-day bus ride from Reno to Seattle, and um, I sold it to an undercover cop. Oh wow. gosh, that was the best thing ever happened to me. Oh okay. Yeah. Well, oh okay. My I get arrested now. Best thing ever happened to me. I thank those cops later on. I thank them years later. Um, because when I was arrested, I was hemmed up, waiting for the paddy wagon, they actually have paddy wagons, and waiting for the paddy wagon, and I'm crying, and I'm crying, and I'm smiling, and the cops are, why are you crying? So because I'm going to live. I'm in prison. Right. I love Pinochle. Double deck Pinochle. <laughs> and, um, playing basketball, and so, um, I went there, got sentenced to six years in the penitentiary for one Ten dollar rock of crack cocaine. Wow. Everybody was blown away. Other mm-hmm. criminals were like, yeah. I'm sure at this point it really had mostly to do with your record. At all prior. to do. Yeah. Because yeah. now the record switched to where you're no longer painted as an addict. Now you're a criminal. Yeah, whatever. it was it was the judge. I had yeah. Judge Harsky. I'm a three time convicted felon. Yeah, he's a guy. Mm-hmm. I had drug sales. And he knew my history. He had it right in front of him. And he said, You come back in, I'm gonna give you the habitual criminal statute. My next felony would have been twenty-five to life if I had stole fifty-one dollars. Mm-hmm. Twenty-five to life. Still there, as far as I know. So I went to 
penitentiary and, and I began the road of recovery. September 23rd, 2004 is the day I celebrated my recovery. And I've been clean and sober ever since. Mm-hmm. Ever since. And 15 years and, and I expect to remain sober. That's my expectation, whether or not it's true to be seen. Let's talk about recovery for a quick second, at least this part. I was talking to a gentleman the other day, right at this table, and I said to him, I said, I only have one goal in the program. And he's like, what's that? I said, my goal is to die, never having picked up again. That's it. It's to die. It's not to help a little old lady across the street to be the best husband, best wife, best mother, whatever. It's to die, never having picked up. That's what I want from recovery. Okay, how I do my life is many decisions and many things that I choose or decide to do on how I have integrity and how I do a spiritual principle. But my goal in the program, in anonymous programs, is to die never having picked up again. I don't know how long it is. I want to have I want to be clean and sober one hundred percent of the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. That's my goal. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You've yeah. talked about you going into a couple programs before this, right? And you've had troubles picking up the spiritual aspect of it. So, is that something you recognize, like when you in like 2004, when you're like, "This is what I've been missing," or is like, how did that come about? Or even realize you had been missing the spiritual aspect? Yeah, not that. Most of that came later. Mm-hmm. So, so this is what happens. I go to the penitentiary. Same penitentiary I'd been in once before, really twice before, but once I'd spent months on the yard. I knew I was going in for years, and I said, if I'm the same person going out the gate that I am coming in, I'm going to have the same results. And that's who I was the first two times. So I had to. I said, I'm going to work on. I made decisions. I'm going to work on the physical. Mm-hmm. I'm going to work on the intellectual. I'm going to work on the emotional, and I'm going to work on the spiritual. Mm-hmm. So the first thing and the easiest was to work on the physical. So I go to the gym, start lifting, I get into powerlifting, basketball, did great. Next thing was the intellectual, because I was intellectually atrophied. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would read a paragraph in a book, and I could not tell you what the first sentence was of the paragraph. I couldn't remember. And then my language was very limited. Mm-hmm. I had a very small vocabulary, and a lot of it was expletives, mm-hmm. a lot of it was threats, and a lot of it's just the word we use on the streets. Right. Okay, so the uh, you know, who's the mar? If you catch a lick, you know, this mm-hmm. these, this term we have on the street, but they're not used in normal everyday conversation. So I had to work on the intellectual, and I read, I read, I got, I got up to like 120, 130 books in a year. So then I had to work on the emotion. I knew I had difficulty with certain situations with the past, uh, such as my father. Mm-hmm. My father ended up shooting him six yeah. times at the University of Alaska. And I hadn't really dealt with that situation. I hadn't dealt with the situation of sexual assault well at all. I hadn't dealt with the situation of being a foster child and what that meant. I hadn't dealt with the violence perpetrated on me mm-hmm. by my father. Okay, so I went to counseling. I went on the yard, and they got counselors, and, and I went there and, and did that for a couple, two, three years. 
and then worked on the program too. Mm -hmm. It's number four. And so I started going, I did a year-long drug treatment program in the penitentiary called Wings, Willing Inmates, Nevada. And then um, I started going to the anonymous meetings. And um, in fact, I met my first sponsor in, in the penitentiary. And then the spiritual was like the last thing. Mm. And I looked at the Muslims and did that for a little while, and the Bible for a little while. Um, but didn't do as much in that area as the other areas. But I was a different person on a continuum of a one to a hundred. And a hundred is, is the most spiritually fit person in the world. I was probably about 70. Mm -hmm. But I would say this. You just have to be one iota, one percent more spiritually fit than you want to use okay sure right. so right now i have like a gap of like 50 60 points difference mm -hmm. between me one and two, which is like zero and i'll say one right zero one versus where i'm at spiritually i'm probably in like 80s okay when i got out of the penitentiary i was more like in the 60s mm -hmm. and my want or need to use probably in the 40s and 50s because when I got out of the penitentiary three years later, I got dropped off you know, two blocks from where I got arrested. Mm -hmm. I was right back in the same world. Right. And I was supposed to go to the halfway house. <clears throat> it took me, took me, it, it took me hours to get there. I should have been there 15 minutes. But I was still making, making, that, choice. making that decision. Mm -hmm. And I came out in a bad situation mm -hmm. because I hadn't really changed a lot of my behavior. So when in the penitentiary, what we do is a hustle. We do in the penitentiary, where we hustle gay men, mm -hmm. and I was doing that. So I was like a pen pal, a oh, gay yeah. guy, and he flew up from California to pick me up from the from the prison, which is thirty miles up there, and to take me in. I was supposed to go back to his room and all. So I dumped him. Mm -hmm. I used him. I right. used him for money. And I used him for the ride, a good meal on the way up. I had a great ride. But it's the same behavior. Mm -hmm. It's the same. I'm still a hustler. Oh yeah. And um, I wasn't too thrilled about that. And anyway, I went there and uh, made the decision. I got to the halfway house in Pitts because it took me so long. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be there. But I went to. I mean, man, I made I, I made some fortunate decisions. I, the guy I met in penitentiary he said that he would work with me. Um, I called him as soon as I got to that halfway house, and we went and had dinner. Uh, that night at a place called Super's in Sparks, Nevada, and I had a double bacon cheeseburger. I had had bacon in three years. We were all about pork in the penitentiary, and um, we made a decision to start working the steps mm -hmm. of one of the anonymous programs. Yeah. And that was one of the best things that I did. Now, the second best thing I did, the next best thing I did, we sat down at first meeting. And he said, no relationship for the first year. And I'd been locked up three years, and all I heard was no sex for the first year. And I wasn't really feeling that. Right. Not what I wanted. I'd look good, smell good. We have a thing called jailhouse swell. Mm -hmm. And that's when you get big because you've been, are you doing lifting, not doing drugs or anything? Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I had about cars. I had a jail. I was 215 at that point, 200 when I was mm -hmm. So 15, stronger than I ever been. I was right. a power lifter. 
Anyway, I'm looking good, 15 years younger. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I was not really feeling that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I remember like a pregnant pause. And I remember saying, okay, my way hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my way hasn't worked. Let's do this. And I did what he told me. Mm -hmm. And I continued to do what he told me. And we started working, and um, I still, I still have some growth. Going back to the spirituality, this is the key thing about the spirituality. The spirituality has to do with having some type of presence, power, entity, whatever you will, essence that can modify your behavior that's outside itself. Mm -hmm. Because I won't stay sober for me. Because it's times that I transgress or I'm in enough pain where I need to be able to go to another presence, mm -hmm. essence, power, higher power, whatever you want, whatever you want to call it, spiritual mm -hmm. being that I have an agreement that I will do the right thing as opposed to what Ken wants to do. Because mm -hmm. Ken is based many times, my will is based on seeking pleasure. Or running away from pain. Mm -hmm. That's it. Short time. Yeah, only yeah. short time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Only short time. Okay. And so um, I've created, I created, but I've, I've engaged in what we call God's will. We work out God's will, and it modifies my behavior. But it's rare that I ever need to modify. My mm -hmm. behavior is good. My right. behavior is in alignment, in accordance with God's will. I do the right thing. This is the right thing. Right. For me right now, this is the right thing. You know, and most things I don't have to run by God. I have a habit of doing the right thing. But you have to be able to create that habit of doing mm -hmm. the right thing. So I get out of penitentiary. I didn't have a habit of doing the right thing all the time. Right. I knew I didn't want to drink or drug. I knew that was all. But there were still things in, in the areas of sex. There's a thing in the areas of honesty. There's a things in the areas of pride. Mm -hmm. that I still had to work on. And there's still things that I work on, but the the level is much diminished. Right. Mm -hmm. on, I'm, I'm more working on the, on the, on the detail okay, of my spiritual growth. Yeah. That's still, still things I'm going to do spiritually. Mm -hmm. But I want you, I mean, to, to grow that. Right. So in, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go. I was say in your spiritual growth. So as you've been growing spiritually, is is it easier because you work with others that are in recovery too right now? So as you continue to grow, is it something where you use these things you've grown from and these things with the people you're working with? Um, do you guys kind of continue to grow together? Like I'm working on this, or is it more of like a direct like teacher like? Um, student kind of relationship, or is it more of like a somewhat of a peer relationship with those, you know, just straight teacher mentor relationship? It's 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 more of a teacher student relationship mm -hmm. because I have the knowledge. Right now, what I can use is my experiences in specific areas to give examples. One of the reasons why I've been effective as a speaker because I've been there. Mm -hmm. And I can articulate specific situations, I can articulate emotions behind it, I can articulate the environment, 
and the same thing when I'm teaching. But I'm a, I like doing Socratic. Mm -hmm. I want you to come up with the answer. Right. So we'll use wordplay. We'll use sentence completion. We'll use, let's use that word. And I'm really big on definition. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, I always tell the bottom, the, the bottom line is all about one word. Truth. It's all about truth. It's about truth. Because again, that's what a drug does. It changes your perception of truth. Reality is real. Mm -hmm. Okay? And we use an outside chemical to change. We need to look at what is the truth. And if there's something we can do to ameliorate or to lessen the pain of the truth, let's do that. But also pain is a gift from God. Without it, you'd be dead. You couldn't feel pain, you'd be dead. Okay, and there's people who are born who cannot feel physical pain. And they usually die or get injured gravely because they can't feel that they're breaking their bone. And the same thing with emotional pain. There's people who don't have emotional pain, but they're usually locked up somewhere. Not mm -hmm. locked up, they're in some type of facility. Right. Because they can't, they can't art articulate and or understand emotional pain because they don't feel it. They don't know what it is. You know? So we do things that hurt people and we don't have any reaction to it. A lot of times we're called sociopaths and psychopaths. Right. Mm -hmm. okay? We should feel guilt. I still feel guilt to this day. I violently feel shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Big difference. Right. You've heard me present. Mm -hmm. You've heard me talk. I'm not ashamed about things I've done. Those are my truth. That's my fact. Mm -hmm. And what I found, it helps people other than me. It's helped me. I've said this many, many times. I sleep really well. I just slept really well a couple hours ago. <laughs> I mean, I sleep really well. Right. I don't, I don't, I'm not angry at me. You know? And I'm not, it's not even that. Sometimes I get angry at me. That's guilt. Okay? But I'm not angry at who I am. Right. That's a state of being and a state as opposed to a state of doing. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, I do dumb things. I'm human. No, I'm not human. I'm Ken Miller. I do dumb things. But I don't um, do things that say that I'm less than and I'm not worthy of being a child of God. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. Right. Like, let me put it I don't, I don't define myself as that. So, uh, in your, when you did uh, get clean and sober, how did you start to create this life that, that was stable, that had more meaning to you, that you valued more in some ways? What was, what was the timeline between like year one and year today? Like, what was that journey like? Because it's, I mean, it's a large transition. Right. Yeah, I hear this all the time. I work with gentlemen, some women, but plenty of gentlemen. Um, one of the first things that is difficult for addicts in recovery, especially alcoholics too, is that everything is short term. So it's difficult for them to plan and to do things long term. I was, I had a gift. I just understood that it was going to take time. Okay. Um, 
you know, I remember I'd, I would be in a prison and I knew I had a few years and I hadn't had the companionship of a woman. And I would say to myself, every day I would wake up and I'm, like, hey, I'm one day nearer. I'm one day nearer. <laughs> you know, I didn't know how long it would be because I got dropped for parole the first time. And I didn't know about it when they knew, you know. So when I got out and I had a, quite a bit of debt, I could have went out there and bought a bunch of blame. And I could have went out there and done things that were pleasure, short term. But I put myself on a budget and I knew it was going to take time. Mm -hmm. And it was tough. 2007. The economy, the arena. I mean, I couldn't get a job. All I could get was a temporary part-time job working in a warehouse. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the, the ability to, and so that happened, I moved up here, you know, married a high school sweetheart, and um, I came into this world, you see, and um, that was good, and I got a good job. And I just continue to do the right thing mm -hmm. in most areas of my life. There's a couple of things I still I still struggle with lust. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we could talk the next three hours about sex, and I'm talking about sex as a as a as a all encompassing. How do you view the world? How do you deal with that area? Because mm -hmm. it's one, and we're not gonna do it, but it's one that's not talked about enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen more people go out over sex and probably self-esteem probably the two biggest ones. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. Self-hatred, self-esteem, you can't get a good job. You know, why are we, you know, I've been out of prison for two months, three days, I can't find a great job. Or, you know, you're in a relationship with someone that's an active addiction. Or you're in a relationship with someone that uh, transgress against some built-in um, idea that that person has to be true to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've seen that. that. That's another God, I my life. You know, another thing I had to learn. I had to leave a lot of prison in the street behind. Mm -hmm. Took time. We talk about the power of words, mm -hmm. and there's uh, certain words that are used in the penitentiary. I don't use one I can say. It's punk. You never call another man a punk. Because it means things in the country, right. it means things on the street. And those words have power, but all they are is a vibration of vocal cords, literally. Mm -hmm. And how do you take away power of words to put you into an emotional state that you react in a certain way? Because a lot of my problems were reactions. Okay? I reacted. Not that I acted, yeah. I reacted. Yeah. There's a very small space between the input coming in from my environment and my output coming out. My output is usually verbal. I'll threaten first and then I'll, I'll do something physical. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I won't even threaten. Just do. Yeah, yeah, just do. Oh, yeah. I've, I've threatened. I mm -hmm. And almost always I had to have alcohol to shut down that space. We call it the gap. Mm -hmm. There was no gap between input and output. And we have, one of the things in recovery, I work with men all the time about anger and how to create that. Mm -hmm. Is there like some, um, 
So what are, I guess what are some of the ways like that you teach gap? Like for anybody that's listening, yeah, like what are yeah. some of the ways or techniques like you might? Well, the technique, the first technique. So there's yeah, a couple of techniques. So one of the first techniques that I share, you can say mm-hmm. I teach, but all I'm doing is sharing, mm-hmm. is many times to create gaps. You have to change the environment. You got to walk away. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had an incident in my garage in this house, right over here in my house. And um, my wife and I got an argument and she called me a thief and in the penitentiary and on the streets. Those are the two words, punk and thief. And she called me a thief and I took a step in my life to what we call put hands on her, mm-hmm. to physically harm her. And I couldn't believe it. I love my life. You know, I spun around, I'll never did. I spun around, tears pouring out of my eyes. I couldn't believe I would have hurt my wife over a word. She didn't know. She mm-hmm. didn't know. It didn't matter if she knew, even if she did know, it wouldn't have mattered. How could a word change, just an argument, change me to a person that's going to hurt the person I love? And I spun and, and got out of the situation. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the first things we have to do is we have to many times remove ourselves from the environment. I'm big on environment. Big on environment. Don't go near bar. I tell people all the time, I'm I have enough sobriety I can go in the bar with you. I can be around alcohol. She said alcohol in this wife drank wine. Rarely could drink wine. No problem. I do not. But I always tell people I'm, I'm not gonna work in the DEA evidence room. Okay? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, because uh, there's two things I do. I help people in recovery, and then I help young men navigate the world. And what I mean by that, I, I, I speak a lot on self-esteem, and I speak a lot on dress for success, and I speak a lot on etiquette and manners, on how do we interact, because they're not getting taught this, young men. Mm-hmm. They're not getting taught these things. So I'll be doing some more seminars, and I do them for free. You know, in fact, I end up paying for some of it because, again, I, I want these young men. And it used to just be young men of color or young black men. And then it went to men of color. Now I've just opened it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And many times, one of the most difficult things for individuals to do is, is to change the people that they associate with. There are people who will not. Think I'm cool. I'd say I'd say that from the stage. I'm as square as they come. I love it. I am square. I used to drive a Volvo. I drive an Audi now, but I'm square. Okay, I'm corny. I love it. My edges are so sharp. I'm so corny. Okay, but I love that. And the people that I want their accolades or I want their praise are not individuals that would think that I'm cool, okay? Because in the, in, there, there are people in the penitentiary on the streets. I don't want them to particularly like me, okay? Because I don't represent the world that affirms what they're doing, okay? Many times we need to be around people. Remember I said when I was in college, it was really easy for me to drink alcohol because I had a lot of other people. That a boy. That's cool. Uh, let's go out. 
you know, get get bent, you know, get wasted. And to them, I was cool and vice versa. Because you affirm and I affirm you. Yeah, I don't care less about those. I'm not worried. I, I talk about this all the time. I'm not worried about the terms alcoholic, clean, sober, all that. I'm not, I, don't, I care less about it. I care about actions. Okay? And many times I have to care about your spiritual condition, which will lead to the actions. And the actions to not pick up. Okay? So I don't I don't worry too much about the nuances of words. I don't and, and so what I'm because this is a big one. I work with a lot and I've worked with a lot of guys coming out of the penitentiary. And it's bad enough that you're an addict or an alcoholic, but now you gotta deal with the stigma, quote unquote, of being and so people use that term. I'm an ex-con. You know, ex-offender, and therefore I can't get a job as an excuse to not deal with the short-term pain of the rejection of an individual not giving you the job. Because in the end, that's all it comes down to is the rejection. If you put enough applications out there, you will get a job, especially in Alaska. I can tell you that now. Look at me. Okay, three times. I could have said, oh, I'm a three-time ex-felon, you know, medium custody, whatever. That's enough, you know, and use that to roll over and remain in one of two worlds, either an active alcoholism addiction or to be in the world where I use people. And that's why I did. You know, I did in the past. I used women to take care of me. And, you know, I chose not to do that. I chose to accept. And so I easily, I don't, see, I don't go out and say I'm an alcoholic. I, I tell people all the time, I don't drink. And then there's times I'm out. No, I can't, I can't drink. I'm an alcoholic. How you take it is on you. <laughs> I'm cool with it. You know, I like me. Yeah. I don't, see, the big thing with most people, they need people to like them. Yeah. I remember I heard the end of your, I, I, I told you I caught like the okay. last 10 minutes of your talk. And I remember, I, I still, I remember I said it to my brother, like, at home or something. You were like, you were like, you know, I'm cool with me. You know, I'm pretty cool with Ken. You know, <laughs> I thought that was like, I thought that was, that was cool. But like, so I'm pretty cool with Ken. Yeah. Right. In, in, a, in a serious I way. I gotta yeah. wake up to him. No, right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what it's like to wake up in the morning and you're like, darn, I'm with me again. What is he going to do today? That's going to make him feel less than. I mean, I would talk to myself. Literally. I thought I used to sit in front of a mirror with a crock pipe and a 32 ounce of natural ice and cry tears looking in the mirror and talking to myself telling how much I hated me. Did it again. You did it again. Okay. I don't do that. I don't have those conversations today. And, but that key part, there's a thing called pseudo self-esteem, which is false self-esteem. I talked about it. And what it means very simply is we get our sense of self-esteem, self-estimation of worth and efficacy, which is the ability to make good decisions for you long-term from others. Yeah. I don't need you to validate me. If you hadn't shown up, okay, that's on you. You know, there's still times I struggle a little bit. 
you know, I was in a relationship and the, the relationship ended and, and it hurt. It hurt. Because I wanted the pleasure and, you know, and pain. And I thought it was an evaluation of me. And it might have been, but that's her interpretation of me. And I just have to respect that. I wasn't the right one for her at that time. Okay, cool. Time to move on. And, you know, and we move on. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just want to say this. And, uh, you know, thank you guys. I don't know what you guys are going to do with it. Do whatever you want with this. Remember, I'm not afraid of my truth. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you put this little blast all over the world. I don't care. I really don't care. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I've said that's going to put anybody in danger. There's nothing I've said to embarrass anybody else. You know, this is all me. You know, I've given you permission. I signed the release or whatever it may be. And I'm good with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm going to great two days from Christmas, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And so thank you, guys. Really, thank you, man. Yeah. 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 Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before we go, if there's is there a way that people can reach out to you? Is that welcome? Like, can they of course like, it is. How, okay, so how would they do that? What would like be your preferred method of people like, hey, I really liked your whatever, I'm interested in your book, you know, what is I, email? Yeah, e- well, you can do email, you can do Facebook, okay. Facebook Messenger, I'm Ken Miller, Anchorage, Alaska, um, I'm trying to, because it might be, there's some other Ken Miller, I'm the African-American, 57-year-old Ken Miller from Anchorage, Alaska, I'm also on LinkedIn, Okay. Uh, I get a lot of messages there. And then, you know, feel free, to, if you want it, email me. It's ken at denalifsp.com. And uh, if you want to call me, 907-250-8488. And, um, you know, I do have people reach out to me for recovery for just different things. And, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in serendipity. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer in... Um, just if you do well, if you do God's will, you do the next right indicated thing, good things happen. And let me put it here, things happen. And then because you have a spiritual presence in your life, you can interpret them as good. And you can make good out of almost anything. Mm-hmm. And I try to do that. So again, thank you. Anybody <laughs> want to reach out, I give you permission. You're not freaking out.